Hey, it's Vadim. Quick announcement here. If you listen to this podcast, hopefully you find it helpful. But sometimes you may run into questions or situations that we haven't discussed directly, and it can be very helpful to just ask them <laughs> directly in a live situation. So we're very excited to offer a free 45-minute coaching call to discuss anything you want to discuss with respect to gear, technique, an upcoming project you have, and maybe some strategies. Whatever you want to talk about, just go to DIYRecordingGuys.com. You'll see a button there to set up a free consultation or coaching call, and we look forward to talking to you. Today's episode covers strategies for recording multiple sources simultaneously. Um, for example, in a session where you would have multiple people recording at the same time. We actually talk about different methods for multi-track recording, including the simplest method, which is to just layer tracks one on top of the other, one at a time. But there may be cases when you find you need to record multiple sources at the same time. So we're going we're gonna to talk about the, the layering method. We're going to talk about the tracking simultaneously method and then a bit of a hybrid approach. And we'll talk about pros and cons for each. We will talk about how to get complex recordings using minimal inputs. We'll talk about ways to maintain a live or kind of a more uh, rhythmically natural feel while still giving you maximum flexibility for overdubs after the fact. We'll give you some hacks for saving valuable interface inputs. We'll talk about two main methods for capturing multiple sources simultaneously. Uh, I got these from a book called Recording Secrets for the Home Studio. It's a wonderful book by Mike Sr. We'll talk a little bit about microphone selection considerations when we are dealing with a multi-source, multi-mic situation. Then we're going to talk about monitoring approaches for making sure that all of the musicians in the session can hear each other and the backing tracks while recording. And finally, if I could just read my notes here, we will talk about a hack that you may think of after you hear this episode, which is actually not going to work for you. So Ben's going to cover that towards the end. Again, encourage you to take advantage of the free coaching call. Set up some time. Let's chat. Go to DIYRecordingGuys.com and you'll see a, a button right on the front page there for setting up a free call. Enjoy the episode. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben from Dreamloud Studio. Happy to be here with you again, Vadim. Likewise, my friend, likewise. What's going on? What's going on? Well, I've been playing, and this is very scary for me, but I've been playing a lot of guitar lately. And it's been fun. Been a lot of fun. I'm actually playing more guitar than I've been playing bass. When you first picked up the guitar, are you like shocked at how close the string spacing is compared to a bass and how small and puny the strings are? Oh, yeah. It's so weird because on bass, it's all about like, you know, like doing these exercises to stretch your fingers out as far as possible. Yeah. And then when you're on guitar, it's it's more about, especially with the weird funky chords, it's more about how 
<laughs> how can I make these weird finger patterns that fit in this small enclosed area on the guitar and switch them really quickly? Yes. Okay. I'll tell you what's really funny as a bass player because I was like not a guitar player whatsoever when I first started playing bass. So I'm I just learned bass finger style, mostly single notes, a couple double stops here and there. And then when I start, first started playing guitar, especially rock guitar, and getting more into you know power chords and playing that kind of a thing, and I started writing my own music, the biggest question in my head was, now do I play like a single note riff, or do I play like for this this main riff of the song, or do I power chord everything, or do I play like power chords with only two notes, or with mm. the root, the fifth, and the octave, or when do I do like a bar chord? Like that was just so mind blowing boggling to me and these are the things that I look back on I mean similarly now now I'm just reminiscing and remembering all these funny little stories from when I was learning instruments when I first started playing drums I can remember asking my drum teacher like that's cool we figured out all these awesome beats but when I'm playing like at church or something like that and it's not like a song I've already heard heard recorded somewhere else or I'm jamming with my friends in my band and the song comes to an end, like, how do I end the song as a drummer? Do I, do I just stop playing or do I hit a cymbal or do I hit a tom? Or <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> and that was like one of, my, one of my questions. I was like, it just feels wrong to just stop playing, but there, there should be some kind of final note or something like that. And Huh. That's why I think playing an instrument helps you listen to music with kind of a new ear, right? Because you start listening for what people are doing, which is, which is cool. That's one of the fun parts about it it is yeah and figuring out what other people are doing too so yeah right so anyways what we have for you guys today actually was vadim's idea and a really great idea and i'm glad we're getting into this because this is a lot more nuance than i would have thought or maybe you guys would have thought uh on first hearing the topic which is we're going to talk about recording multiple people slash audio sources uh a couple different ways on how to approach this, some pros and cons of each method, and maybe our own recommendations. So this seems like, I think from maybe first glance, a pretty simple topic, but I've written two pages of notes like I always do with these things, because there's a lot to talk about with this, especially with like some tips and tricks that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, I, I likewise have a lot of notes, and I think we've focused a lot historically on this podcast on kind of a layered approach to multi-tracking. So maybe you're alone and you're layering on instruments. So that's certainly one way to record multiple people or sources at the same, um, or record multiple people or sources. But I really tried to keep a focus on recording multiple people or sources simultaneously and different strategies for doing that. So mm. is that is that the approach you took as well? Or are you more just saying like, here are the different ways to get multi-tracks? I more took a much higher overview of everything and the pros and cons of are we going to be layering individual tracks to capture all the people or sources or are we going to be taking a different approach are we going to record everything at once or my third option is the hybrid approach got it okay so maybe we'll have you start then with the layer approach and as we move into the simultaneous approach that's that's where most of my focus was uh so yeah let's start there go for it Cool. Like I said before, in talking about this topic, I would say there's two overarching approaches and then a third option. So the first one is let's record all the sources at once. The second one, let's record each source independently and then combine them afterwards. 
And that's the approach that I would say most home studios or small studios are taking. And that's kind of more the approach that I prefer. But then there's the third uh, option, which is some hybrid combination of options one and two, which is probably something that we all do. We all do some hybrid of this. My goal with this is to hopefully give you guys some ideas that maybe you've never thought about before. Um, so let's dive into each of these. So let's talk about option number one, recording all the sources. I said it once, so do we want to dive into that right now or do we want to talk with independently first? I would say let's go independently first because I think it tends to be a simpler simpler setup and I think the concepts we talk about will still apply to some extent when we talk about recording multiple things simultaneously. Okay. And actually, maybe, I don't know if you're going to do this, but maybe, do you want to start with the pros and cons? Like, why would you, let's, maybe the decision yes. between recording individually versus simultaneously? I was, actually. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. So, maybe just ignore my numbering options from earlier, but for the sake <laughs> of, for the sake of this podcast, option one is going to be recording each source independently. So Sweet. And feel free to jump in anytime, Vadim, if you have an additional pro or any want to add anything onto that or a con with each of these. But I have roughly three to four for each. So yeah. the first pro that I thought of with recording each source independently is um, it's easier to get tight and clean recordings. Or aka another way you could think of this is I don't have any bleed from other instruments getting picked up. So other sound sources getting picked up in a microphone that wasn't intended to be picking up that sound source. Um, on top of that, when you're recording with less distraction, less instruments going on, so if it's just a guitar player playing along to a click track, you know for certain when you're listening to that that you're going to be in time. Whereas you could be getting distracted by a bass player or a drummer who's playing... Um, faster or slower relatively to the click. So all that extra sound information that's going into your monitoring, into your ears, is going to, af to affect the way that you play. Now, as we get into um, some of the other options, maybe that's something that you want. Maybe you want to retain more of that live feel. But if you're going for something that you want to get really tight, think modern genty metal or proggy stuff. Um, you want to get that stuff as rhythm rhythmically tight and clean as you possibly can, and I think independently is the way to go. Pro number two, it's easier for the whole band, this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek moment here, but it's easier for the whole band and producer to listen and give objective feedback on the individual performances. And I said, this can also backfire. <laughs> so the example I have of, uh, of this is a band called Villainess who came into my studio to record and before they had never done any studio recording, no recording experience whatsoever. All they'd ever done is practice live and play shows. So when they came into the studio, I kind of took a hybrid approach, but for the most part, I recorded each sound source independently. And when we got to the bass player, I had him go last. And our guitar player was like, wait, what notes are you playing there? And so we had to actually make some corrections because he was playing his own bass riffs, which were cool, but they weren't actually in the key that the guitar player was playing in. And they were clashing, and he and neither of them had ever heard that before because mm. they were either things were so loud in their practice or live playing spaces, or they 
just were focusing on what they were doing and and how they were fitting into the puzzle piece of the band and not listening to how it either combined or clashed with the rest of the band. So I think that that's a positive, but this can also be a negative if you have maybe one person in the band that's overly controlling and maybe you don't want them to give as much feedback. But <laughs> that's a more uh, joking comment on that. I, th I think it's a, a positive. Uh, number three. So you need less in or less inputs are necessary on your interface to record a full band whenever you're recording each source independently. Uh, so what that means is you can invest more in a higher quality audio interface, which is kind of the route that you've gone, Vadim. And then my last pro, this is number four, you can afford to record in smaller spaces. Uh, instantaneously i mean the first thing that comes to mind if you're recording even a two-person group but more often it's going to be more than two people uh and they're in the same room together you're just going to have to have a room that can accommodate that size whereas if it's only one person at a time with the exception being maybe drums you can really record anything in a very tiny room yes yeah, I like those a lot, and I'll I'll add a couple of of uh, additional pros here. One is if you're a solo musician and you're playing multiple parts, multiple instruments, then you have to layer because you can only play one instrument at a time, most likely. Very true. Uh, another reason is if you have, if you or your band have musicians that are less well rehearsed. So, in other words, you're not very confident in everybody's ability to play through the song without making mistakes consistently because what's going to happen is you're going to have somebody plays a wrong note or misses a rhythmic cue and the whole thing is ruined and you can't really punch in if you if you were recording everybody together necessarily so if you have if you're not as well rehearsed layering may be a better option because you can punch in and you can kind of redo parts and listen with that critical ear as you mentioned and the last one I have here is if you're recording kind of as part of your writing process, so maybe the whole arrangement mm. isn't fully fleshed out, you may say, look, I know I want a synth here, a keyboard part here, but I don't know what I want it to be yet until I record all the other instruments and the vocals. Then, you know, you can build a song layer by layer like that. That's a really great point. I like tracking that way when I'm doing bass parts because a lot of times I want those... Uh, initial gut instincts to make it into the recording. Yeah, it's so true, and it's a little a little off topic of this episode, but I I just it's just really what you said struck a chord with me, no pun intended, because I can't tell you how many times I'll just pull up like a keyboard or a synth, or even if I'm playing a bass part, and the first thing I play, I'll end up trying different things, and I always go back to that first thing. I'm like, man, that just feels the best. There's something about that kind mm -hmm. of gut instinct that that is it does tend to be magical. Yeah. So if you can retain that in any way, uh, even if you go and track at another studio later, like that's going to be a benefit for you. Yep. Let's go on to talking about some of the cons sure. of maybe recording a source independently. So the first con I have here is uh, the recording can sound a little bit more isolated or sterile even. Um, I had this experience with a three-piece band that came into my studio and after they were done recording, like all the recorded tracks sounded phenomenal. But when I tried to mix it together, the thing that I struggled the most with was 
getting everything to sound big and full enough. Mm. It just sounded like everything was way too thin. And I think maybe part of that was I wasn't able to kind of capture the cell phone videos they were showing me of their live performances because on a cell phone, when you're playing a live show in a room, everything is combining and bleeding and messy and it's loud together. And I wasn't getting that same feeling because that same bleed isn't there. Everything was so isolated and focused that I kind of had to, I won't say I introduced bleed, but I had to do some other things with reverbs or adding saturation to kind of make up for that lack of live sounding mm. feel. So this is something to keep in mind too. Um, all these topics or all these options that we go through, they're also very genre and style specific. So if you're very much more an acoustic singer songwriter that has a kind of coffee shop intimate feel you might always benefit more from doing a live style recording rather than a focused more sterile uh capture or you could be like a hootie and the blowfish kind of like jazzy fusion um instrumental type of experimental band and i just feel like those kind of records benefit from that live sound more than maybe other more produced genres. So number two, the band members can have a more difficult time following along with less instrumentation when they're recording. So I know this happens for a lot of bands, but it can be really difficult if you decide to, that you want to go this method of tracking each source independently. Well, somebody has to start and go first. Okay, so drummer, you're up. Uh, here's a click track. Go ahead and play with that. And you have to remember where all the verses are and all the pre-choruses and we'll go into some tips and tricks for fixing that problem. But if you think about it, you know, somebody has to start painting on this blank canvas and that can be really tricky, especially I noticed for drummers and vocalists because they play off of each other a lot. So then my third con is doing this method can also make for very, very long recording days. So I suggest let your bass player record first so he could go home and watch Netflix <laughs> and everybody will, everybody will be more happy. No, I'm just joking. Anything to add to that, Vadim? Uh, you hit most of the things I had. I'll just add on to what you were saying about, you know, the blank canvas and it being hard to paint on a blank canvas. Also, depending on the genre and depending on how tight the band is, you can get less vibe just by having less interactions between the band members, you know, some some bands just sound good, like the bass player and the drummer are playing off of each other. They get that groove locked in. That could be a magical thing that's difficult to replicate playing to a click track where you may have to be kind of a little more sterile. And again, this is very much mm -hmm. genre dependent because you mentioned a couple of them. I also say pop music. A lot of modern pop is very kind of has that more sterile, more separated vibe, whereas something like bluegrass or folk music you may really want uh those grooves or like jazz right you may really want to have those musicians locked in and playing off of each other and uh, you also mentioned this one uh it's more work in the mix to get everything to or it can be more work in the mix to get everything to sit together but this is really a little bit room dependent which you kind of said as well if you're in a small room it may be preferential to use the layering method because in that case you probably want to take the room out of the equation but if you're in a space that sounds decent, actually having some of that room noise, we'll get into this a little bit later, but having some of that room noise is actually going to help you. It's actually going to help 
the make the instruments sound better. If you think about like a drum kit, what a drum kit would sound like without room mics, it would sound terrible. It would sound small yeah. and fake. So yeah, sometimes that room can help you if you're in a good sounding room. That will lead us into our second option with recording multiple sources, which is recording all the sources at once. So let's do the same thing. Let's go through our pros and cons here. Um, pro number one, and we just got finished talking about this. It's easy, easier to capture the live feel of a band. And I think this is the number one reason why you would want to record all the sources at once. You're going to get those vibes and everybody's going to be playing off of each other. And this is also especially true if your group that you're recording doesn't play or they don't have as, as much experience playing with a click track. Sometimes it can be pulling teeth a little bit to get people to play with a click track if they've never done it. But if they sound good as a band playing along the way that they do, why not just record it off the click? Uh, option number two, and this is kind of related to number one, but the band, each band member can be more easily inspired by each other's performances. And I know this is true of me as a bass player. I love playing with drummers. It's just more inspiring to see somebody else in the room and vibe off of what they're doing than mm. it is just to hear that click, click, click yeah. <laughs> in the back of your head. Oh my goodness. And then third, this is kind of a minor thing, and I don't know actually how much this is true, but the recording process can be much faster just recording all the instruments at once. Because I think that that can sometimes not be the case, especially if your musicians are not that good and you have to wind up retracking everything. And also think about um, the point that you're going to have to set everybody up at the same time. So you're going to have a longer setup period, but maybe the recording can go faster, especially if you don't need it to sound maybe as polished. Maybe you're trying to capture that live feel. Those are my pros. Anything to add to that, Vadim? No, no. I mean, pretty much the, the pros for this method are the cons of the other method. So <laughs> yes, that's pretty much how my list goes. I have a few more cons, or one more con than pro for this method. Um, I'm not biased at all. <laughs> con number one, it's much more difficult to get good takes because a lot of times if one band member makes a mistake, it's a mistake for the whole band. So you got to keep that in mind. Um, two, audio sources can bleed into microphones other than you want to capture. And I'll bring up the infamous cymbal bleed into vocal mics. And this was really surprising to me on a couple of different situations. So the first one was I tried mixing a live recording that we had done of Lacey's band when I was touring with her um, when we played at the machine shop in Michigan, really famous venue. And oh my goodness, I had to fight with all of the cymbal bleed going into her vocal mic mm. because every time every time she would angle and she was using a dynamic microphone it wasn't like a condenser but every time that mic would face a cymbal like you could barely hear her voice at all <sighs> so i was doing all kind of eqs and tricks and stuff like that and the same thing happened with um one of the bands i'm playing in now where we did these uh we call them the cabin sessions where we went out at somebody's very rural cabin and we recorded all of our songs live Ooh. it wasn't meant to be yeah, it was very cool it wasn't meant to be perfect it was just meant to basically capture live performances while we weren't able to play shows but all of those vocal takes that we did were completely unusable because all we could hear is cymbals bleeding into that mic so 
um, that's something to definitely keep in mind. And it's not like you can't deal with it. What we wound up having to do is just overdub the vocals after the fact. Con number three, this can and most likely will require a lot of inputs on your audio interface. So I'm being generous in saying four is a minimum you're probably going to want. And, and a very minimum that would be. Eight to 16 are reasonable, but you're going to be most happy, especially if you want like a nice, full sounding recording. You're going to most likely want 24 to 32 inputs. Oh, Jesus. All right. I'm going to, yes. I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit. And this is okay. when, when we start talking about the techniques, you're going to understand why I'm saying this. But one of the advantages, I think, of this method is that you can actually get away with less inputs. You just have to be willing to capture more with the inputs you have, which gets into mm -hmm. all the cons you just mentioned. But in theory, you can use one microphone to capture a whole band. And that's what we're going to get into that yeah, later when true. we start talking about how. But I think, again, this is really genre dependent. You will not be able to get a modern pop sound using one microphone. Okay. No. But you might get a decent sound of recording like an acapella of three or four people. So you have to kind of, yeah. your, your mileage may vary here, but anyway, keep going. That's a really good point. And I, I will add on to that. So exactly like you were saying, you could mic up an amazing acapella group, 50 member group with just two microphones and get a stereo image of that and it's going to sound amazing you're never going to get what beyonce sounds like on her last tour because i saw i watched a youtube documentary and her front front of house sound engineer is running 196 inputs oh my god so it's a little bit unreasonable to expect <laughs> that type of live sound whenever you don't have that many inputs i don't even understand that i don't understand either <laughs> i guess each vocalist has five microphones. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. So the, the final con, this can be a pro or a con, depending if you have the space, but you just need a larger space to record a larger group or multiple sources at once, at least a larger space than you would need for a single instrument input. So maybe you don't have the space. You might be limited on the things you can do with this method. Agreed. I wanted to maybe touch on the hybrid approach a little bit too. So let's say you want to get more of that live feel with your band. Let's say you're a four-piece rock band. You want to get some live feel in your recordings, but hey, I only have a four-channel interface or a two-channel interface. How can I do that? Well, you can do something like let's give one microphone uh, or let's set up one microphone to record the drummer and let's use another microphone or a DI input of our bass guitar and let's just track the drums and the bass together. One group that did this, they had more inputs than that, but they decided to track their bass and drum uh, drummer at the same time is a band called Carnival. They did this on their album Sound Awake and... It's my favorite album of all time. It sounds phenomenal. Hmm. And I remember hearing an interview with the recording engineer that did that record. And he was saying that the bass amp was in the room, was in the drum room. So the bass player was 
sitting right next to the drummer and they play the whole album together. So there is a lot of bleed from that bass amp that gets into the room mics, but he thought that it just sounded cool. Mm. And you've got that kind of extra vibe and that extra sense of this is a band playing in a room together, like kind of capturing like a live show more than just a isolated recording. Now would be a good time to maybe jump in and talk about some techniques. Let's start with our first principles and talk about what are our goals here. So if we're capturing multiple sources simultaneously, can, I was just trying to think about like what are what are the first principle goals? Well, one goal is that we want to capture everyone's performance in a way that will allow the person mixing it to create the desired balance. And the second one kind of goes hand in hand with that, which is to minimize any performance bleed between the sources and between any backing tracks or reference tracks. So for example, you wouldn't want to necessarily track with people listening back through like monitors, right? Because then the microphones are going to pick up what the monitors are spitting out and you're going to get feedback or whatever else. So with those two goals in mind, if you think about like the bare minimum kind of sub goals to achieve these high level goals, we need to have a channel input for every channel that we plan on recording. This is going to be an important part of your strategy because you have to understand how many preamps you have and how many channels you have to be able to record at the same time. Mm -hmm. Another thing we need is we need to provide each musician with the ability to hear either the click track or the backing track. So everybody's got to be able to hear those things. If there is a click track or backing track, there may not be, but at a minimum they need to uh, hear themselves and they need to hear the other musicians. So those are kind of our goals, right? So we need to have be able to record all of our inputs and we need to have everybody be able to hear themselves and each other and any backing tracks or click tracks that we're using. We'll start with kind of the easiest example, which is electric instruments or any kind of instruments that have electric outputs. So for example, an electric guitar or a keyboard or a drum machine, right? So we, we talk about we can, we can always capture a DI or a direct input or a direct inject tone. So for example, we can capture the output, the direct output of a guitar, and then later we can do something with it, right? We can reamp it or something right. like that. We talked about that a lot, so I'm not going to get too much more into that. But basically, every electric instrument will require at least a single mono channel. And if it's something like a guitar or bass, that mono channel will require high impedance to have a high impedance input, or sometimes it's called an instrument input on your interface. There's also, like a keyboard can be a stereo source. All that means is stereo is two channels. So you need to record maybe a left and a right output for a keyboard. And I'll just say here that if you have a stereo source like a keyboard, you may not want to tie up two channels for that keyboard. So you always have the option of uh, making sure you have a mono patch on your keyboard and recording just the mono signal off the keyboard. And then you can mm -hmm. always make it stereo later in the mix. That's one possibility. This way you tie up one channel on your interface instead of two channels. Another option to tie up no channels is to capture the MIDI, which you can usually do through mm -hmm. like USB. That way you're still capturing the live performance of the musician and then later when the session is over and you have some time and additional channels, you can actually use 
that live performance to drive uh, either the, the keyboard that the keyboardist was using or some other instrument. If you're confused about that, go back and listen to episode 20, which is titled What MIDI Is and Why It's Your New BFF. And that is, <laughs> I stand by that title 100%. <laughs> it's a super useful thing. I really hadn't thought about it in this context of saving inputs, but you are saving yourself another valuable input if you have maybe a limited amount. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, even if, you, even if you're not saving inputs, it's kind of like capturing a guitar DI. You can always just capture the performance. And then if the keyboard player just made one little mistake, instead of re-recording it, you can just tweak the, the MIDI and uh, be on your way. So that's for, you got anything to add before we move on to acoustic instruments on electric instruments? Yeah, maybe here's a thought here too. And this kind of just occurred to me, although I know this is a lot more popular with metal bands, but a lot of times they'll do the same thing like you were talking with the keyboard and just record the drum parts on a MIDI drum kit. Now they might not record the final takes on a MIDI drum kit or they might only keep the drums and then overdub the cymbal hits because sometimes the cymbal hits can sound a little bit weird in MIDI still. So they'll still capture the actual cymbal performances after the fact, but they'll keep that MIDI. So that's another option. That's a great point. Absolutely. Most electric drum kits uh, can be used to uh, output MIDI, which is a great option. So just, just to kind of uh, backtrack a little bit, what we're talking about right now is capturing multiple sources. We're also going to get into those other considerations, which is monitoring, like how do you get everybody to hear themselves and each other. Uh, so moving on from, from electric instruments and moving on to acoustic sources, which are going to require microphones. And here I want to I have a useful nomenclature from a book. Uh, it's a Mike Sr. book called Recording Secrets for the Home Studio. He had a really mm. kind of interesting way of, of classifying this, which is which is helpful. Uh, he's basically saying there's kind of two categories when you're when you're dealing with miking multiple sources. He calls one of them the dominant array. So let's just start with what is an array. Array is just a fancy word for one <laughs> or more microphones. This <laughs> in this case. So he's he's saying I don't care how many mics you're using, but the dominant array concept means you're going to have a primary microphone array, so maybe it's something like two microphones, a stereo pair, and that dominant pair is going to capture all of the sources in a way that creates kind of an overall balance that we want. Now, in addition to that dominant array, you can have what he calls like spot microphones, where maybe you want to highlight something like a kick drum, so you then you put a microphone special for the kick drum. But in your final kind of mix, the dominant array, those dominant array microphones are going to be the bulk of your sound. So one example of that is, for example, recording a drum kit with just like stereo overheads, right? You're going to try mm -hmm. to get the, a balance such that the snare is centered and such that the, the, the mics are picking up all the drums kind of evenly, as evenly as you can and so on. Another example would be like recording a rock band where you need to consider something like how loud are the sources, where you want the louder sources maybe farther away from your dominant array of microphones so that your kind of, you know, distance becomes kind of one of your faders. You're kind of, you're doing a rough mix and you're moving things farther and closer from the microphones to get that volume balance the way you want it. And 
one of the the pros of using we've already talked about this you need less channels basically to capture a full yeah. ensemble and again you can capture those you know mic bleed can be your friend here we're going to talk about how to make that actually a strength but again I'll use that example of a drum kit the rooms if you've never heard this the rooms are really the character of of the drum sound those room mics um Yes, yeah, so this is useful for this technique of dominant array is useful for uh, when you desire kind of a more live feel and for less production heavy genres, which we mentioned like classical music, folk music, bluegrass, acapella, and it can be a very simple setup because your dominant array again can be can really be just one microphone. the The second type is a little more complex. It's called so that was dominant array. We also have what he calls a peer array. And a peer array is basically when you have a dedicated array for each subgroup of sources. So, for example, you have an array that's focused on the drum kit, and then you have an array that's focused on the guitar amps, and then you have an array which is focused on the vocalist. Um, we'll get into considerations next, but I want to let you jump in here and, and comment on those. Have you heard of those characterizations before, by the way, dominant array and peer array? I haven't, and actually I'm glad that you brought them up here because I don't think I've spent too much time thinking about the difference between a primary array and, and like, um, uh, what was the other one? A peer a peered, array. Yeah. Peer array. Just thinking about it in that terms is really helpful for just breaking down like, well, what do I need to do to capture this source? Or if I only have two inputs or one input, what can I do with it? When I tried to record my sister's violin concert a long time ago. I remember I tried to do more of a peer array type of a thing and she hated the way when I showed her what I did, she hated the way that it sounded. And I realized it was because I tried to approach it more like I would a rock band. And I tried to capture the sound sources and have such premium microphones placed in close proximity to the sound source. And that's just never how you hear like a violin, especially in a classical music context, ever. I don't think one has ever been captured that way on a recording. They're all captured in these beautiful, big cathedrals. Uh, and instead, what's more picked up is kind of the room. So they use that more uh, primary array technique to to capture a more classical sound. So what I was doing was focusing in and it was picking up all the noise of her hands moving on the strings and the the screeching mm. of the bow and it was just focusing too much on that maybe those imperfect characteristics of the instrument rather than the overall sound so that could be another helpful way for people to think about well do i use primary array or a, a peer array yeah absolutely and that, that ties in nicely to where I'm going next with this, which is let, let, starting with that dominant array and what the considerations are. One consideration, you mentioned this, is you know, you're know you moving sources from the microphone. You actually have, can move the microphone a little bit too. So one of your considerations and questions you want to ask yourself is where do the performers like to set up? Uh, so let's say you're recording somebody else's band and you go into their practice space and like they already have everything set up and they like that, you know, they, they're comfortable in that uh, orientation and that setup. You may not be able to or you may not want to start moving people around. Uh, of course, you can you may have the option of moving amps. But you, one thing you have to understand is like, are they relying on visual cues? Is their setup 
fixed? Can you move people around? Um, that's going to be one of the levers you can pull. Another consideration is which instruments are overpowering or unable to have their volume controlled. So for example, an acoustic drum kit, you know, you're going to have a drummer who wants to hit hard. Or like another example would be a guitar amp where driving the guitar amp loud may be an integral part of the guitarist's tone. Mm -hmm. Well, in that case, you may not be able to uh, play so much with the volume of those instruments. So you're going to have to do things with the microphone like move the microphone farther from those sources or use a directional polar pattern microphone that isn't looking directly at those sources. Another consideration is what are the acoustics like? If you go back and listen to episode 27, which is our acoustics episode with Yesko Lohan, so this is where you want to record maybe when the band is taking their, getting their sound check, do a test recording and listen back for any sources that get like a, either a slapback echo type effect where you can hear kind of a double sound or a little bit of an echo there or for like boominess in bass instruments. And if you have that slapback echo, that's a hard word to say, slap, slap back echo, <laughs> then you may want clap, to- Clap back echo. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm sorry, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> then you may want to use uh, something like blankets or cushions and place them in between the sound source and any hard surfaces. That's going to help you minimize those slap back effects. For boominess, you may want to consider moving the microphone because that boominess can be a result of a room mode. And again, go back to listen to uh, episode 27 if you want to learn more about that. Or maybe you can move those bass sources. Like if it's a bass cabinet, maybe you can move it away from the wall or somewhere else to get less boominess. Anything to add there, Ben? No, I... I mean, that was really good what you covered. The only thing you really probably have to really worry about moving around is vocalists when you have a vocalist in the context of this because a lot of times they're standing directly opposite of the drums uh, in the middle of the room and just a lot of times that's just not going to work because there's going to be so much bleed into the microphone. But maybe we can talk about that more in depth about some ways of solving that problem. Absolutely. And, and if anything, if pressed... I'm trying to think. I, I would almost always want vocals re recorded separately. Yeah. But yes, there are other ways. You can isolate the vocalist away from from the drum kit, and maybe uh, we'll, we'll get into that when we talk about monitoring a bit. Um, in this Mike Sr. book, there's a really interesting concept also that he calls critical distance, which is this is really only going to be applicable to large rooms. So in your small room, it, it may not even apply. But critical distance is the distance at which kind of the, the loudness of the room reflections are as loud as the source itself. So you mm. kind of picture if you're like right up on an amp, you're hearing just the amp. And as you move farther and farther back, you're hearing the amp plus some room sound. And you keep moving farther and farther back. At some distance, you're getting as much amp as room sound. And that's called the critical distance. And he gives some rules of thumb, which I had never heard of before, but he says like for something like recording an ensemble or like a classical, yeah, like a classical music ensemble, you would want to start, if you have an omnidirectional microphone, you want to start with roughly at a third of the critical distance is a good rule okay. of thumb. And for a cardioid polar pattern microphone, you want to start at roughly a half of the critical distance. And again, these are just starting points you can adjust from there but again it's kind of cool because it's kind of like having a reverb plug in on your mix 
And if you want mm-hmm. more reverb, you just move the microphone farther back. And if you want less of that room reverb, you move it in closer. I like what you said there. And, and this is actually something really huge to keep in mind because let's think about a situation where you place the microphones all in different proximity from this critical diff- distance. It's really hard to overdub instruments and add a reverb plugin that matches the room that you recorded in. You can mess around with it enough to find something that maybe kind of matches, but room adds so much vibe to your sound if you're going for that live feel. Uh, you should definitely spend a lot of time trying to hone in on it or get it to a place where, where it sounds good in all the instruments. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so a couple notes on mic selection with this technique. Uh, so in general, if you think about what you're doing here, if you're using one or let's say even two microphones to record multiple sources, then you probably want microphones that are going to be fairly flat across the frequency spectrum and give you something fairly honest. And I'll give you an example here. There's like the famous kick drum mic that I have. There's a couple of them. One of them is the AKG. D112? Yeah, the D112, right? That microphone sounds awesome on kick drums. And if you look at its EQ response curve, it has a nice boost at like that 60 hertz range that gives you that nice oomph. And then it has a nice boost right where that click is in like the upper mids. And so you end up, the, the kind of the mids of the, the frequency spectrum end up sounding kind of scooped, which again is awesome on a kick drum. I probably wouldn't want to use that mic to record a choir because yeah. it's not going to sound good. Or like even if I'm recording multiple things with that microphone, I probably want something more neutral because even though that microphone will complement the kick drum and maybe like a bass cabinet, it probably won't complement a guitar cabinet or a vocal or something like that. So in general, we want to aim for a microphone that has a flatter frequency response and condenser microphones will typically work better for you from that standpoint of having a less colored sound and going with like a large diaphragm condenser microphone will give you better extension into the low frequencies as well. So, you know, condenser microphones we talk about, like they're really unforgiving if you have a crappy sounding room. So you got to be a little bit careful there. But in general, they'll give you kind of the most honest representation of your multiple sources. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would just say that more of my decision when going into microphone selection is whether I'm going to use that primary array or a pure array. Okay. If I'm doing something primary, I probably would pick two really nice condenser microphones and capture stereo. If I'm doing something more of a pure array, especially I'm thinking of recording drums, pretty much going to use exclusively dynamic microphones on a drum set, with maybe the exception of overheads. Right. Right now, I'm kind of focused on dominant array, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and the reason for that, maybe I'll just tag this on sure. since I brought it up. One, the drums are so loud, you have to have some microphones that can handle a high sound pressure level, mm. SPL. And two... They're going to be um, capture a more uh, direct sound in front of them and not pick up as much bleed around them. So that that would be my reasoning for that. But no, I I agree with what you said for the reasons that you said yes. Cool. Another thing to keep in mind is something that we don't play with a lot, but when you're doing this dominant array method, it becomes more relevant. Don't forget that microphone height 
is another kind of lever you can pull. It's another independent variable you can use to your advantage. So, for example, if you're getting a lot of, I don't know, some amp that's in the front of the stage or whatever, and you're not getting enough snare, you can kind of put that microphone array higher and angle it towards the snare and use mm. maybe the the uh, the polar pattern to your advantage a little bit. So you're getting a little more off-axis rejection of the guitar amp while picking up more of the snare sound. So it's kind of another trick for balancing uh, your levels if you're having some difficulties with that. You can also use that same exact technique to kind of color the EQ of what you're picking up. And I'll do this a lot with room mics on a drum kit if I'm getting too much cymbal or high end. But you could also use that for a mix. It's kind of like, I've heard it described to me before as bass, tra bass frequencies travel along the floor. And it might not be so much, I don't think that's quite an accurate explanation. It's not that the bass frequencies are kind of traveling along the floor. I think it's that you're just kind of getting that reflection immediately off the floor more than you are in just the middle of the air. So if you want to get maybe less high end, more low end in whatever you're capturing, either angle the mics down towards the floor or get them lower. Yeah, I think that it might be like a similar effect to why uh, having something like a base cabinet near a wall is sometimes not desirable. I think that you're right. Those, what happens is I think the reflection, and again, episode 27 is great for learning more about this, but the, the reflection combines with the, the signal off the amp and kind of can amplify the, give you kind of an exaggerated bass response. So that's a great point. And, and the same thing happens on the opposite end of the spectrum, or at least you can use angling to control the other end of the spectrum. If you know that, for example, pointing a microphone directly at a source will typically give you more higher frequencies, whereas angling it slightly away from the source will kind of roll off the top end a little bit. So that's a trick that, mm. for example, I use a lot on vocals. If I'm using, I want to use a uh, condenser microphone, but the vocalist has a lot of sibilance a lot of S's and harsh T's, sometimes just angling, rotating that microphone a little bit away from them will tame those uh, harsh frequencies. Great point. I love it. Cool. Well, we're running a little low on time, so I'm not going to get into stereo, some stereo techniques here. Uh, we probably should just do an episode on that at some point. We should probably save that. I do have a little bit more I want to say on some more tips and tricks here. Maybe just some overall ideas for capturing in general. So yep. let's imagine our situation like you brought up before. Uh, you're recording a band in a garage and they already have their places where they sit and they're set up. You can put up gobos, which are transportable sound panels, put them in front or between each of the sound sources and you're kind of isolating off at least a little bit some of that microphone bleed. So you can have people closer together and have less bleed with each each microphone. And and that's something huge that you can do. And I'm sure if you've watched any live performances in a studio or from a studio on YouTube, um, a lot of these studios do the same kind of a thing. 
That's a great point. Yeah, and and we say gobo that that is like the official term, but you can use in a pinch. You can use couch cushions and sleeping bags. I especially couch cushions tend to work really well because they're kind of thick. And uh, yeah, putting them, for example, in between two amplifiers and uh, getting some isolation between those amplifiers, especially when we get into peer arrays, that is a great technique. Another thing here is I mentioned you can use bleed uh, to your advantage, and we used uh, already the drum room example. You can really kind of listen to what the bleed sounds like. So for example, let's say you're recording a guitar amp and a piano, let's say an upright piano and a drum kit. Well, you can listen to what do the drums sound like in the guitar uh, amp microphone, right? What does the drum bleed sound like there? And then what does it sound like in the piano bleed microphone? Use the bleed that the, of the drums getting into those microphones to your advantage as kind of like a room mic. Maybe you can pan those sources left and right and also get a really cool stereo drum sound as long as things sound balanced there. So listen for that bleed and try to actually use it to your advantage. And, and that's more for the, the peer array method when you have multiple uh, array groups focused on different sources. Let's talk about monitoring. Okay. So when we talk about monitoring, again, we're, we're talking about really the need for everybody performing at the same time to hear themselves and each other and possibly any backing tracks. So I'll just give a couple options here. The simplest option, let's say you have an interface and you only have one headphone output. So if you go back to episode 21, I think I mentioned this, which is a little headphone amp. I think I have the little HA40. It's made by Behringer. Mm. And it's a great little unit. All it does is basically you take your one headphone output from your interface and you plug it into the input of this headphone amp. And then the headphone amp gives you four headphone outputs with an individual volume control for each one. So this means that now four people can control their own volume and hear what's coming out of the headphone output on your interface. So this is the simplest way to do this. The downside, and it's not a huge downside, in most cases this is gonna be fine, but the downside is that everyone is hearing the same exact thing, the same exact mix. So the drums are gonna be equally loud in everybody's headphones, and some people may not want this, some people may wanna change their monitoring balance. So let's talk about some options there. One option that I've used commonly is to create a bus in your DAW, so you create a stereo track, let's call it headphone bus one, for example, and then I can send my tracks to that bus. So I say, I'm gonna send my guitar, I'm gonna send my snare, I'm gonna send whatever I wanna send to it, and then the output of that bus is going to be mapped to some output on my interface. And let's say my drummer then is plugged into that, the drummer's headphones are plugged into that output on the interface. So the drummer is basically hearing whatever is being sent to headphone bus one. And then if the drummer says, hey, I need more guitar in my headphones, well, you can just increase the send level of the guitar to that bus. And the power of this method is then you can create multiple buses. You can create a bus, a headphone bus for each output you have. You can create headphone bus two, and you can send guitar to headphone bus two as well and change the mix, right, by changing the levels of those sends. So this is a very powerful technique 
And you can do this if you have multiple headphone outputs. But even if you have mono, uh, a lot of times it's okay to monitor things in mono. So even if you want to just use a mono output on that bus, it'll get you uh, what you need. You ever you ever do that, Ben? I have not done that. That's a really interesting trick. I might have to use it in the future. I have a couple questions though. Sure. So when you when you do that, if you have the let's say the drummer wants his own mix and he wants to plug into one of your outputs, is that output by default mono because you're only plugging one headphone jack into that? Or right, yeah. If you if you don't okay. have stereo outputs, you will have to use a mono output. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that. That makes sense. That's what I thought. But no, that's a that's a great idea for solving that problem. A problem you might have with that method is latency. So with this method I just described, if you think about what's happening, everybody's instrument has to go into the interface and then get converted to digital. If you want to learn more about that, really referencing a lot of episodes, go back to episode two. Yeah, we are. Uh, so then it has to get converted to digital, go into your computer, into your DAW, and then back out of your DAW, back into your interface. So there's a lot of round-trip time here. Depending on what kind of interface you're using and through what kind of connection, you may find that this method gives you too much latency. And if you do, there is another option here, a low-latency option, which is a feature that most interfaces have called... Uh, well, it's usually called like low-latency. And what it does is it routes the outputs or sorry the inputs into the interface directly to the outputs of the interface without having to go through the computer and make that round trip through the computer in that case and Ben I know you have this interface you have the AT&I 20 which I also own most of those types of interfaces that give you that option will come with some kind of routing software uh, like for Scarlet, yes. it's called Mix Control. And within that Mix Control software, you can make multiple mixes and do the same thing I described with buses, but without having to go through your DAW. You can usually set that up right in the interface software. That's not going to work as well if you're only capturing DIs from your guitars. Great point, yeah. Because if you think about it, you're relying on your amp modeling to happen in your DAW. So if you bypass that, you're only going to hear the DI. That's a great point. And this can be a bit confusing. Uh, it took me a while to get a grasp on this. But yeah, a lot of times you, you, it's confusing because you'll pull up that software that came with the interface and you see a bunch of faders and a bunch of tracks. And that looks very similar to what you see in your DAW. And what you'll notice is that you can mute a track on your interface software and that removes that direct monitoring option, you could still hear it through the DAW. And if you're not careful, if you have both of those things unmuted, sometimes you'll get a really weird phasey thing because what you're hearing is the input routed directly to the output and then you're hearing also what's coming out of the DAW. So you can get kind of a yeah. weird double signal. And if you're getting that, one way to solve it is to either mute the channel in the DAW or to mute the channel in your interface software. Which is what I wound up doing. I just have them all muted by default. Right, because then you're controlling the mix from your DAW, which is yeah, a fine way to yeah. do it as long as you're not fighting latency. If you are fighting latency, you could do it the other way. That's really helpful, Vadim. You know what? I have, um, I have a couple more things I do want to talk about. Yeah, go for it. First thing, you can't plug more than one audio inter interface into your PC at a time. Mm. At, least, at least without some real trickery. 
and I don't even know how to do it. I know that it is possible, and if you're not computer savvy, like very computer savvy, I wouldn't recommend trying it. The way that an interface works is it's an external sound card, and so when you have one plugged in, it kind of takes over your computer's brain as far as processing sound. So you can't plug more than one interface in at a time because this was something I thought that I could do maybe whenever I first started recording was, well, I have a two-channel interface, so if I just add another two-channel interface and plug that in via USB, it's I'll have four. doesn't work that way. You either have to have an interface with enough channels or you will have to daisy-chain interfaces, which brings me to my second thing to keep in mind. You can't uh, infinitely daisy-chain audio interfaces via ADAT, Fire, FireWire, or even Thunderbolt. There typically is a limit on the number you can daisy-chain, and there's definitely a limit on the sample rate you can do. Mm. All right, man. Well, good episode. Yes. We remind you guys to always check yourselves before you wreck yourself. Have a good one, guys. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.